Hello, and welcome to another Metamedia production of JW On Purpose with your host, JW Nigerian, as he interviews and discusses business, finance, self-development, and lifestyle. This is J.W. Nigerian, and we're here today with Senior Director at New Edge and New York Times bestselling author uh, of A Colossal Failure of Common Sense, the inside story of the collapse of Lehman Brothers, Lawrence McDonald. How are you doing today, Larry? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. I can call you Larry, no problem. Sure. I can call you J.W.? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, just, I just finished your book up a few days ago. I read it probably about three times over because... I just, I really, I loved your story. Well, it thanks just, a lot. It isn't just about the, the colossal failure. It, you, this is a story. This is a great book. It kind of covers um, kind of the human side as well as the political and global uh, macro side of everything. You know, so there's different parts of there's different parts of the book, just like there's different parts of the financial crisis. There's the, you know, human side, and then there's the political side. Uh, and then yeah, the human side. I mean, when you talked about your your, your life with your father, uh, when you talked about you getting your Series Seven and how that came about, and the rough road you took through education. You know, we really got a sense for who you were. And that's the key, you know, to to putting a book together is most financial books are kind of sleepy because there's no character. There's no, uh, you don't have an aff- affiliation mentally with, with anybody, you know, in a lot of books. Right. And what we try to do is really bring the reader inside of not just Wall Street, but inside the mind of someone that, that was there. Right. And was that uh, was that roughly the idea of um, Patrick Robinson or yourself? Oh, it's definitely give credit to, to Patrick. I mean, he's designed uh, a lot of New York Times bestsellers, and that's why I hired him as my ghostwriter because of his ability to structure a story. I mean, I kind of wanted to get to Lehman Brothers and to and I think we get to Lehman on page ninety-two in the book, and I, I'd prefer to get there around fifty. And um, I think that if you look at the way the book was reviewed, the New York Times, uh, Fortune, a lot of really good reviews um, like the fact that we got into the bank a little later and that, you know, you kind of bring the reader inside of, uh, you know, of me as a character uh, instead of just jumping right into the financial crisis. Um, I think that the the purist and the people that were really interesting and, and interested in gory, you know, financial stuff, they wanted they wanted you to be inside Lehman Brothers on page one. But uh, the, the best reviews we had, like from the New York Times and some of the other uh, some, some of the other publications, The Economist, they really liked the fact that we kind of we kind of take the reader. Uh, we kind of spoon feed the reader on complicated uh, subjects like risk risk management, uh, credit default swaps, uh, legislation like the um, Commodity Futures uh, Trading Act that dismantled Glass Steagall. You know, right. so there's so many complex things that you really have to take your time and and, and educate the reader all the way through. Because we didn't want to write this book for you know Wall Street. We wanted to write it for people on Main Street. 
Well, you know, and it needed what you put in there. When you talk about, and I can't remember off the top of my head, your friend's name, the guy who worked at the gas station across from the gas station you worked in. Uh, but you talk about, you know, your childhood friends and, the, and some of the guys you grew up with, and it's very important, I think, for the book to set those relationships up. Yeah. Uh, that you guys were in competition early on, and that he, because later he was your boss at Lehman, correct? Oh, that's right. And that was, yeah, that, that's... That's a very important part is the relationships you have through life, you know, how they can come back and help. And that's why you have to keep those relationships. You know, a lot of people uh, in, a, in a tough job market, you have to have uh, those deep, that, you know, that deep Rolodex. Okay, so the book starts out with uh, you telling your story of how you grew up with your father and um, some of the lessons you learned from him, which are very important uh, because... You were kind of the group at Lehman who was bearish when everybody else was bullish, correct? Yeah, as a group. I mean, there's no I in team. You know, as part of a big group that kind of had that view. Uh, we were very uh, suspicious of uh, some of the profits that were being made in, in both commercial and residential real estate. Okay, and, and I want to get into that, but I want to back up a little bit because we're, some of this is going out to some authors. And this was your first book, correct? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. you're a New York uh, best-selling uh, author now. Uh, what, was, what was that whole thing like? I mean, was it uh, a lot of authors find that they write a book and then the marketing becomes, you know, they think they're done and then the marketing becomes a big thing, or the book is so hard to write. Or, you know, can you kind of break down uh, how the book came about? Yeah, well, um, you know, in terms of essentially, I did an arbitrage. Um, I had to put a book like that together. You have to have relationships, deep relationships across the bank. So I knew a lot of the heads of, like, for example, people on the executive committee. I had three or four uh, good friends that were on the executive committee at Lehman. I knew the head of emerging markets trading. I knew one of our I knew one of our top risk managers in the firm. Um, in terms of people on the risk committee, I knew about eight or nine of those people. So I had those people on one side, and then Patrick, um, I looked at Patrick Robinson, who's a hall, I think a Hall of Fame ghostwriter. I look at him as someone that could help me structure the story, but also get it to market quick. Because one thing I've done in my life a couple times successfully is, is um, mastered the first mover advantage when we sold ConvertBond.com. And in 1999, I sold ConvertBond.com to Morgan Stanley before the dot-com crash. And my, my partner and I, Steve, did that. And um, we were able to do that because Was we were that? first to market. That being that aside, was was that a luck move on your part, or was that very highly calculated? Well, it was definitely luck in the sense that if we had waited another three or four, five months, we would have been in trouble. But it wasn't luck in the sense that we hit the first, you know, the first meaningful bid that we got. You know, maybe a second bid. Like we were talking to different firms, and we weren't going to mess around. We felt the dot com trade was long in the truth, and we we didn't get cocky with it, and we hit that bid. What's really great about this book is what you just mentioned, um, and that is it, everything started falling apart in 2007, 2008 was when it really cracked. I think I, I don't remember the exact month, but you had your book out in 2009. Exactly. We were we were the first. You got to understand this book came out four or five months before Too Big to Fail. It came out 
which is you know, a very famous book on the financial crisis that came out, and that's written by Andrew Ross Sorkin. And it came out over a year and a half before The Big Short. It came out almost nine months before Hank Paulson's book. So it, it definitely was, was first out. And um, essentially putting the, the book together was uh, a process of really me sitting down with the top people in the firm um, and getting their perspective on different parts of what was going on and then sitting down with Patrick and kind of relaying that. Because my, my perspective was from the high-yield uh, bond floor and the distressed debt desk, so I could, I could articulate that part of the story. But it was really, you know, an investment bank is like a 767 with 16 engines. And to write a book about the largest failure in the history of the world and uh, in the financial markets in terms of this is the biggest, this bankruptcy is 10 times the size of Enron. It's bigger than Enron, WorldCom, General Motors, and Delta Airlines combined. So to put that together, you got to sit down with lots of people across the firm. And you were you you were a VP. This is what, I mean. This is why it's important uh, that that, uh, that we're talking to you about that you wrote this book because you were a VP of distressed. Uh, what were you bonds? What was it? Yeah, distressed debt, convertible securities, high yield bonds. I traded all all those instruments. And so you were you were working at the company when it collapsed. So you had you were this is the book from the inside. Yeah. And what was more remarkable is that you coming out first with this book. This um, the way you explain. I mean, starting with uh, Clinton's administration and Glass Steagall, all the way through the breakdowns with Fold and, and and you know the people that were with him and not then not with him like Aaron and Joseph. Um, I mean, you pretty much. Um, not only set up the history, but uh, the whole um, choreography for the whole, for the for the whole debacle. Yeah, well, essentially. Um, and this is this is wait, this is at a time, Larry, when the rest of the world that in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, we're still trying to figure out what happened. Yeah, and um, what we did was, um, I think I was the reason I was able to do that is that. You know, Lehman, Lehman was, and Lehman and a couple other firms were really in the thick of that um, trade. And the mortgage trade, and Lehman was secure in the top of the market in 2006. Lehman was securitizing uh, five billion a month of subprime and Alte loans. Uh, New Century was, uh, which is another mortgage company, they were doing about the same thing. So. So we were, you know, I was in a firm that was, you know, right in the middle of that trade. So I had, and and I really owe it to the people I spoke with. I I spoke to two or three of our top mortgage-backed securities traders. I spoke to, uh, you know, like I said, uh, people within the firm that managed the mortgage portfolio risk and hedged it. And I was part of a team that hedged the the leveraged loan book. So that was my, my, one of my jobs at Lehman was when, we got caught with a lot of these leverage loans. Uh, there was an LBO boom in 2007, and we got caught with uh, billions of dollars of risk. And it's just a matter of trying to hedge that risk. So I really, uh, like I said, I owe it to the people that I sat down with, and, and I give credit to them because without them, I wouldn't have been able to put the whole story together. That's cool. I... But getting back to your other point about oh, okay. authors, um, I think it's important, you know, the book 
hit the New York Times list on the first uh, week, and it stayed there for a while. And um, I owe a lot of credit to the social networking and media uh, attack that we put on. Um, I, I can't stress enough to authors out there listening to me, don't rely on your publisher. Uh, your publisher only does so much. On Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, when the book came out, I had thousands and thousands of uh, followers. And, um, you know, to have that robust social network and those uh, media relationships that I made, um, you know, in, in getting on the different shows, that you do on your own. I mean, the, the, the publisher does a certain amount for you, but it really comes down to your own work ethic and creativity and, and getting uh, getting those relationships, and that helps a good book launch, and that, that, that gets you on the New York Times list if you do it in a powerful way and you have a good story. Well, can you can you do a lot of that PR stuff on your by yourself getting on the shows, is it, or is that something that's sewn up by the publicity people? Well, if you have a good, you know, you think you think that it's very important that you understand this. You would think that it is sewn up by the publicity people, but um, if you have a good story and you're creative and you um, make the phone calls and you have some time. Uh, I, I got myself on a bunch of the top shows in the country. I, mean, I was on uh, a lot of the big uh, talk shows. And, um, and, th- and also through your social network, a lot of these producers are on um, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and they'll find you that way. I mean, I must have... Oh, I found have... you on LinkedIn. Yeah, sure. And then a lot of the uh, producers are. So the producers will catch the fact that it's a sexy story possibly and then they'll just call you up through Twitter through Facebook through LinkedIn and you'll get a lot more interviews that way let's touch on social media a second just because it's you know it's one of those weird cats out there that nobody really knows how it's going to end or or what's going on or who's going to be the winner or how to really use it on the other hand everybody knows it's not it's like the cell phone in the microwave it's not going anywhere and we're all going to end up using it somehow somewhere um, so I always thought the think the early adopters are going to be the winners, and you've successfully used it to uh, uh, promote your book. I see you on Twitter. I see you on LinkedIn all the time. You're a, you, you participate a lot, and what I hear from people in your let's say class of uh, executive and corporate workers and those kind of people in the in the capital you know I work with commercial real estate so capital companies commercial real estate people and the like they're all staying away because they figure that's just that's a bunch of kids rapping or um it's it it works for everybody else but not for them what do you say to that well there's no question that i think facebook has a much younger profile than Twitter or, say, LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, a, you know, and you also you know have a lot of uh, what I call high-convexity negativity uh, with social networking. What that means is this, when in certain aspects of Facebook, there's tons and tons of downside and, you know, what's your upside, you know. Um, with Twitter, um I think it's different. I think you uh, there's a lot more professional organizations, asset managers, hedge funds. I mean, people that I can do business with uh, my company. Um, I think that in terms of marketing, there's much more. Twitter is a much more professional uh, social networking platform. Now, granted, one of the things about you know Twitter, there's a certain amount of accounts that are 
you know, not real and outside. So, I, you know, right now I've got 10,000 followers. Mm-hmm. Now, how many of those people can actually help me is, is nowhere near that number. There's definitely some accounts that are that are kind of uh, robotic and things like that. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful with that. But um, I think Twitter, you know, LinkedIn and, 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 and Facebook, I'm sorry, LinkedIn and Twitter are much more of an adult platform that can help uh, authors big time. Yeah, and I think LinkedIn is really growing. I, I used to get very... Uh, it was great for meeting people um, business to business, but uh, it wasn't great for getting response. Um, marketing response from LinkedIn is actually climbing, and uh, very happy to hear that. Because it's not it's not so obtrusive over there. Yeah, yeah, it's like uh, just not as it's, it's definitely much more of a business product. Right. So you had a deal. You had a deal right out of the shoot since you were the first book. I'm guessing with a publisher. Uh, yeah, we what we did was we we took um, we took the manuscript that was you know 85 percent done, and we put together an outline, mm-hmm. and then we got uh, you know I owe a lot to Larry Kirschbaum, who was my literary agent, former president of uh, Time Warner Books, and. Mm-hmm. And Larry um, marched the manuscript around the street, and within a week we had a, a, a nice bid. Nice. It's always good news. <laughs> and then you then, but then you started your marketing, the marketing circus. And did you enjoy doing the shows? Did you, I mean, you still, I, your um, assistant tells me you're still extremely busy doing interviews like this. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's um, it's. I think I'm busy because uh, this. There's a lot of demand. Uh, I've done 40 or so lectures in 16 countries, mm-hmm. and my speech, uh, my, my keynote addresses, are rel- very relevant today. Today, because what's happened in Greece and what's happened um, around, you know, kind of the, the world now is is with the banks is very, you know, similar. We're in a similar systemic risk uh, stage as we were in 08. There's there's, there's 50,000 to 100,000 references a day in the global press to uh, Lehman Brothers in Greece and, and what we're going through now. You know, they want to know, you know, can it take down the global economy again? Uh, how how interconnected are the banks in terms of systemic risk? What have we learned in terms of corporate governance, uh, risk management? All these issues I kind of address through my uh, speeches and media appearances. Right, and your blog. Your blog is a very good, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's lawrencegmcdonald.com. And my my Twitter handle is at ConvertBond. At ConvertBond is the Twitter handle. And what is your website again? It's uh, lawrencegmcdonald.com. Okay, lawrencegmcdonald.com. Let's back up a little bit to um, to the days at Lehman. You, one of the first things you bring up in the book is Glass-Steagall, starting with Clinton. We, we talked about that for a second. And uh, I just wanted to, to talk to you about that. Um, I know you talk about it in the book like that was the uh, keystone of the, the the whole start of everything. And I was wondering when I read that, was you know you put so much emphasis on it. My question to you is, Glass Steagall, as bad as it as good or as bad as it might have been, that didn't. And, you know, it opened the door to, you know, people that probably shouldn't be buying houses, opening, you know, buying houses. But did did it really open the door to this mass um, 
this greed? I mean, wasn't it more of a perfect storm? There were more than just the Glass-Steagall Act that made this whole housing um, boom and crash go on. Is that oh, yeah. I mean, right? there's a lot of things to blame. I mean, uh, Fannie and Freddie, uh, the, the, the government uh, was behind, you know, putting... Uh, kind of middle income to, to poor families and homes, and there was all types of in- government incentives. Wall Street's to blame for, you know, taking on too much risk and uh, and, and not managing. Family Bliley was uh, was dismantled by Glass-Steagall. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, that put a middleweight boxer like Lehman into the ring with a giant, colossal heavyweight like Muhammad Ali. So in order to compete, a lot of these, you know, the Bear Stearns and the Lehman Brothers of the world would use leverage and borrowing, you know, really obscene amounts of money to compete against, you know, big banks with $2 trillion of deposits. You have to understand that the top, Three banks in the United States have over six trillion of deposits. Uh-huh. Uh, Lehman and Bear Stearns didn't have any deposits; they were just true investment banks. So the, gla- the overleveraging comes in. Yeah. So if you're if you're a, if you're a Lehman or a Bear and you're trying to compete on uh, deals on mortgage-backed securities deals on commercial mortgage-backed securities transactions on leverage loans in the LBO space and your is you know one you know one third or twenty five percent of the big banks you know you're gonna the only way you can compete for the big deals is to lever up and to use leverage and uh, that's a deadly deadly double-edged sword because you can make tons of money by levering up Lehman at the top is forty times levered. So right. it's like walking into a bank with a uh, hundred bucks in your back pocket, but you're playing at the uh, blackjack table with four thousand dollars. So there's not a lot of room for for error. So I think that the reason the investment banks leveraged up from 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007 was they weren't not they weren't just trying to make more money. They were trying to compete with these colossal. Um, banks that were allowed to merge after Glass-Steagall. So you had a... You know, make hay while the sun shines, but then you add the derivatives to that. Well, that's another part. That's that's where I talk about the book. Essentially, I, I look at it as like a salvo. I mean, I think that the, the smaller investment banks like Lehman and Bear Stearns started to, uh, you know, use leverage to compete, against, to compete with the big, uh, the big banks in the U.S. But then a lot of a lot of times the big banks used um uh credit default swaps and other other types of businesses to compete with these leverage entities so um it was like a that was like the next the cds market exploding you know that allowed um you know the the bigger banks to compete and and, and uh, do business uh and use their balance sheet um against the smaller banks. So it was kind of like, um, you know, almost like a leveraged arm race going into 2007, 
By the way, I want to thank you because one one thing about you know I've said a few things about your book. I really liked your book for the story. I really liked your book because of the history that it showed and the uh, not only just going through all the details of what happened, but uh, the um, ridiculous you know hubris of of some of the players and and that kind of stuff. But what was really cool about your book is that. There were parts that I really, I, you know, I think I'm a smart guy, but there were parts I really didn't understand. Um, you could take this book to a, to a high school class, and they could read it and understand what a CDO is. They could understand what the CMBS is. They could understand, anybody can understand the, the players and the things that happened on your book because you explain it very simply, but very detailed. Does that make sense? That was the goal. I mean, that's where I owe a lot to Patrick because um, to you know to sell the book to Main Street and to uh, not just to sell the book to Main Street, but to help out college students, to help out MBA candidates, right? Um, to really do something nice for humanity. And you know, you watch this Occupy Wall Street movement, uh, and, I, and I'm just really saddened by it because. I see these interviews and I feel bad for some of these kids. They don't really understand what happened, and you know they really should read books like mine because it'll it helps. I've gotten thousands and thousands of emails from college kids all around the country, and right. said that this book was a life changing you know book. So I'm glad that I help people in that regard, and I can't thank you enough for your for your um, for your comments. Oh no problem. Uh, let me ask you while we're there, um, what do you think about? Uh you know, raising taxes for the uh, the 1%. Well, you know, one of the large hedge fund managers wrote a letter to uh, uh, the that, that group today. I think one the, the top 1% of wage earners in New York pay 40% of the taxes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you take a city like New York, I mean, the economic engine of, of Wall Street, I mean, it's the most important engine in the city. I mean, you're literally attacking something that is the lifeblood. I mean, it's just the, the capillaries of the city. And in a time where, you know, they, the Occupy Wall Street movement had a point in like 2007, 2008, but these banks are, you're going to see in the next two weeks that the banks are going to report earnings, okay? Right. You're going to see the worst quarter in years of earnings. I mean, but if you listen to these people, but you know what I mean. If you listen to these people on the street, you think that the banks are coining, you know, gold bills. I mean, I just don't understand. They're like, they're 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 so late to the party with this argument that it, it makes them look uh, silly in some respects. You know, it's an easy argument to believe. You know that they're going to be trying, B of A is going to be charging me sixty more dollars a year when I when they just use my tax dollars to get bailed out. What the heck is that? I mean, it's it's an argument that sits really well with that crowd. Yeah, yeah, but they used it and they paid all the you know the top four banks in the United States paid all the money back. The government made a lot of money uh, from those companies. Now you're right. There's, there's a couple people that haven't paid the money back. Uh, in terms of raising the fees, that's totally misguided. The, the, the reason the banks are raising the fees is that. Um, the Dodd Frank Act is uh, is is hurting business. Uh, it's forcing banks to deleverage. One of my big points of the book: mm-hmm. banks should delever based off of GDP. Okay, so 
When times are good, it's the time to force a bank to increase capital requirements. So as an economy improves and as the economy gets overheated, that's when you want to put the brake on the banks. What's happening today is we're in the throes of a second recession, potentially. We're in a global economic slowdown, and the politicians globally are forcing the banks to to, 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 to massively increase capital requirements, which which hurts their lending capacity, and that would you know get us out of this recession or or slow growth period, whatever you want to call it. Do you know what I mean? So no, I, I do. So the banks are increasing fees because of the the costs that are being thrown at them from the regulatory front. Right. Well, you know, I just I, I've been reading that if you take all the money from the top one percent, including Buffett and, and Bill Gates, you add it all together, it's still not going to pay off our deficit. So taking a, a larger percentage is is just a kick in the can down the road, isn't it? And, and it's not helping the economy. Well, the point is, I think you know, during times, if they had done this in two thousand seven, if they had right. forced the banks to increase capital, we'd be in such better shape. But instead, you know, government. You know, didn't regulate, and they didn't. Uh, I mean, GDP. The hotter, the sexier, the the more robust an economy gets, that's when you want to force the banks to increase capital requirements. Yeah, and this is what should happen with regular families too. When you're when you're when you're making money and things are good, you should be putting back you know years worth of wage. Yeah. Uh, but instead, what we do is we go, let's uh, take all the equity of our and buy a boat. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about you just you just mentioned the double dip economy, <laughs> the double dip recession. Excuse me. Uh, are we in a double dip? Do we have well, a court one. I'll tell you one disturbing thing today, and you know the the market is up. The S and P five hundred is seven up. Seven days in a row. Yeah, but it's more substantially. You're right, seven days. But in the last seven or eight days, we're up almost thirteen percent from the lows. And the last time the Dow and the S&P were here, the, com- the CRB index, which is the commodity index, was 10% higher. Gold was uh, like $200 higher. Oil was $4 higher. Uh, copper was much higher. Um, credit default swaps on commodity-producing countries like Indonesia, uh, like South Africa, uh, like Peru, Chile, those credit default swaps, which are a measurement of uh, the risk of those governments to pay back their their loans, those have not improved uh, as much as you'd think with a huge rally like we've had. So all of that tells me that this global economic slowdown uh, is still in play and that what the, the rally that you're seeing is that the foot the foot has been lifted off of the neck in terms of somewhat of systemic risk. You know, a week ago we had uh, a real potential systemic risk problem in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, and now we've kind of taken that off. But uh, we still have uh, economic growth risks that are they're at play. Uh, let me ask you this: You know, the market. CNBC talks every day. It's when the market's down, oh, we're in total collapse and everything sucks. And then the next day, the market's up, and wow, you know, we're out of our, we're, <laughs> we're out of the hole. 
but the truth is the market's, you know, like a big, huge roller coaster right now. It's, it's not working off fundamentals. It's working off volatility and emotion and probably a bunch of robotic traders out there uh, that probably control the market a lot more than we know. Is, is this all true, is, or is, is the market actually working on something that you can count on right now? Um, it's working on... It's working on really... I can't emphasize this enough. You don't have many times in your life when you have this type of systemic trade that we've had. Um, you had it in 98 with long-term capital. And you, 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 you know, I guess in 2000, you really didn't have it because it wasn't a systemic risk issue with any kind of banks. It was more just a global slowdown based off of the uh, dot-com blow-up, right? In 08, you had a huge systemic risk trade, and that's where the major financial institutions are at risk, and now you're having that again. And you don't have it that many times. Normally, all the market has to worry about is growth and economic conditions. That's that's a lot to worry about, but when the market has to worry about systemic, real systemic risk where banks can, you know, colossal banks can fail and countries can fail, that type of risk creates this type of move. It's not so much computer trading. It's not, you know, big risk taking. The reason you're seeing student body left, student body right is that, you know, a week, week and a half ago, seven days ago, there was literally blood-curdling fear uh, because of Greece. Uh, and banks exposure to Greece and governments exposure to Greece and those governments exposed to other governments and you know it was you know you got to understand what's happening in Europe and I talk about this uh, on Twitter I talk about this on CNBC and then I'm like what's happening in Europe is literally probably five to ten times more uh, more dangerous than Lehman Brothers. Uh, it's it's just so much bigger and so much more systemic in terms of countries failing, in terms of all the banks those countries can take down. Uh, so I think that's what's really at play here. Well, you know, some would some would argue, and I think you even alluded to the fact uh, when you mauled Lehman over in your head the, the zillion times you did probably trying to sleep at night that. A lot of the, the, the lot of reason that Lehman's no longer is because Paul pissed off. Uh, um, what's his name? Well, you know, Secretary of State Hank Paulson. You know, they yeah, didn't get along. Hank Paulson. So, uh, Secretary of the Treasury. Excuse me. Secretary of the Treasury. Hank Paulson. So uh, that probably wasn't as bad as what's going on over in Europe. Can you? you is there any way for you to to explain what's actually happening there? Well. Um, essentially, when Lehman was going down, it it was a big bankruptcy. I mean, it's uh, like I said, it's ten times the size of Enron. Uh-huh. But to put out that fire, all you had, all Hank Paulson and his team had to do, and this was a lot, but they had to get Nancy Pelosi, Harry Reid, Barney Frank, Christopher Dodd, our political leaders, in a room and say, "Hey, we need." Uh, a bazooka, and the bazooka was the troubled asset relief program, and essentially Hank Paulson and his team were able to put this whole thing together in the course of about 35 to 40 days or so. Uh, in, in Europe, you have 17 different uh, financial ministers, 17 minute, 17 different countries. Uh, there's just so much more coordination, and the, the dangerous thing is that 
that coordination that's needed um, in, in a you know in a, in a eurozone that's had two world wars in the last hundred years. Uh, you have a lot of different moving parts. You have a very high productive people in the north. Sixty-five um, percent of the GDP out of that region comes from the northern countries. Uh, so you have a lot of political and economic angst, not to mention just the difficult difficulties of, of, of formulating a coordinated uh, effort the way we did here in the United States. So there's just a, a much higher likelihood that uh, over there that they're not going to be able to do what we did over here, and that leads you to much more systemic risk. That's why it's more. That's why we've had more violent ups and downs than we did even during Lehman. And I wouldn't. And what, what, what's your total take? I'm going I'm to just go and say, before any of this happened, all I could hear was the stories of, uh, you know, the um, not the ex-chanters, but you know, the, the us, the 53, and uh, what did what did they call the baby boomers? I'm sorry. Uh, there was a big, you know, the big story was that uh, we would have major issues because the baby boomers, you know, retiring would start taking out their 401ks and uh, out of the, the system, and that would cause a lot of money to be pulled from the economy. Oh yeah, yeah. And it would cause all kinds of issues, and then we have medical issues, and and so many things, and taking care of old people. This is going to be such a, a bad thing on the economy that we are going to have problems. But that didn't go away. But the crash happened. So I'm, I don't want to be doom and gloom, but between the crash, the baby boomers, and um, an overbuilding of homes and commercial properties, add to that unemployment rate that doesn't seem to be going anywhere, and there's no great plan for making it move, how can you be positive at all that we can, cut, that we can get out of this? Well, and, that, and we're not even mentioning Europe in this statement. That macro issue, that kind of a big picture um, problem, is is um, developing over long, long periods of time. Right. It's kind of like the negative dollar trade. Um, you know, the U.S. dollar will suffer because of what you're talking about, because of the baby boomers uh, are becoming older. Uh, they're going to be spending their retirement. They're going to be uh, really draining their uh, retirement accounts, and they're not going to be earning as much money. But th that's going to play out over 10 or 15 years you know, from right now. And we don't know when the apex or the pinnacle of that problem will exist. It may be in 10 years. Uh, nobody really knows. So in the meantime, you know, you can have, uh, you know, glorious good times. Uh, but, you know, we are dealing with uh, structural problems in the United States uh, that um, in so many different ways that are significant. But, you know, I, I had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with uh, Charlie Munger when I was in uh, Omaha. I went to the annual meeting. And, what, you know, at the end of the day, you, you, you can't underestimate what, what an incredible place this country is in the United States of America. As many problems as we have, the economy and our system has a way of uh, metamorphosizing itself like no other. And you just have to hope that the politicians don't get in the way and that you know they let creativity and innovation um, solve a lot of our problems. And, you know, because at the end of the day, that's what's happened in the past. And, and we're still the best place to do business in the world in so many different respects. We still have 
uh, you know, the, the most creativity in terms of Silicon Valley. Uh, and, you know, you can say what you want about the U.S., but it still is, uh, you know, one of the it's, it still is not just one of the best places to do business in the world, but it's. It, I mean, you just want, you just saw what happened over the last two weeks. We had this all this systemic risk, and people are flocking into U.S. Treasuries. No matter how many problems that we have here, people. If you have like five or six or ten billion dollars, and you want to put it someplace safe during the most difficult time of despair, you're putting it in U.S. Treasuries, and that says a lot. No, that does say a lot, and they've also been, you know, the world is buying them up, essentially. Yeah, now, you know, other, other, other you know, right now, the world's kind of selling them at, at this moment, because the 10 years gone from, like, uh, one spot seven two to, I think one spot, I think it got down to one spot six eight, and now we're at, like, uh, we're at, like, uh, you know, two spot one five or two spot two oh, so... You know, two two spot two two right now in the ten years. So the risk on trade has come back over the last couple of the last seven days. Okay, so um, yeah, so they're sell- there's people are selling treasuries right now. I yeah, know. because they're you know the, the the systemic risk that we're talking about the end of the world. Well, not just the end of the world, but everything we were looking at last week in terms of risk out of Europe. A lot of those. Uh, risks are perceived to be off the table because of what's going on with um, this European Union is behind the scenes. They're they're forming they're forming a kind of a backstop, kind of a, a tarp too, kind of like what we did uh, under Hank Paulson and his crew. And this facility uh, in the next ten to fifteen days. It's the make or break, uh, and the market's pricing in that this facility will get approved. But you, in the next 15 days, you have the EU summit, which is on the 23rd, and then on the 4th of November, you have the G20 meeting. So uh, you have the everything's lining up for a coordinated global backstop of the European Union's problems. That will take systemic risk off the table, and that takes the foot off of off of the neck of the market. And now the markets just have to deal with traditional growth risks, which you know are serious, but they're nowhere near as serious as a systemic risk trade. So you're essentially saying that there's no way they're going to let everything fail over there. Well, it, you still could have some some things. You still this it's the jury's not out. I mean, I think that. The market might just be, I think there's a good chance over the next couple of weeks that the market might be disappointed with um, with the size of the backstop. Uh, it's not going to be, you know, a, a trillion, you know, I don't think it's going to be a trillion bucks. Um, Italy has Italy has um, two, $2.2 trillion of debt, of which $400 billion comes due for maturity in the next, uh, between now and 2014. So, um, you know, the, the risks are the systemic risks are still out there. I think that uh, the market's pricing in uh, a real healthy uh, solution, uh, and they may be disappointed with the size of the solution. We may be ahead of itself for, from a trading perspective right here. Let me ask you something because it, it seems obvious that you believe that that's going to help. One of the issues we had with TARP here was that uh, when the banks got the money, they didn't loan, and that was. Um, 
the, the famous last lines of the movie, uh, Too Big to Fail. Uh, well, I'm sure they're going to loan it out. Um, is that something potentially that can happen over there? That uh, Yes, but once again, that's a, that's a slow growth issue versus a growth issue. Okay. That's not a... Um, a Lehman-type systemic bank issue. So that's something the market will have to face uh, when that happens. But I, I can't emphasize enough that the market can handle slow growth. It can handle you know anemic lending and slow economy and maybe even a slight recession. What it can't handle is uh, a colossal breakdown of the European Union which would knock, you know, five or six banks out of business, uh, and that would create a global um, contraction in lending that would make Lehman look like a picnic, and that would potentially lead to uh, depression. By the way, so. one, of the things, uh, one of the things that you mentioned in the book, and it was funny because you talked about bonds as opposed, you know, to stocks and the difference between them, and you got me extremely excited about bonds over stocks for investment purposes. And then you went into these, these long stories about how these companies, you were watching these companies who would go to these convertible bonds to bail themselves out, and as soon as they started, uh, these things started popping out on the market, it was your red flag that they were going down. Did I catch it right? Yeah, it's, it's well, when a company repeatedly goes to the convertible market, uh, a lot of people on Wall Street call it the last saloon because uh, it's a place where you can just about anybody can go uh, and raise capital. So it's definitely a warning sign. Like if you look at the if you look at the top ten bankruptcies of the last fifteen years, Delta Airlines, Calpine, Lehman, Enron, uh, Adelphia, they all repeatedly uh, used the convertible bond market um, aggressively just before they failed. And uh, what about today? I hear there's some bad news for bonds today. Uh, even muni bonds had some issues today. Yeah, well, you know, the, the muni risk is, is serious. It's more over the long term, like you have the pension risk, uh, the, the unbalanced budgets across the different states um, and the, the unfunded pension liabilities. You know, those are serious uh, risk, but... Um, there's tremendous value in certain municipal bonds of certain states too. So it's really uh, idiosyncratic risk there, which is you know some are good, some are bad. Um, the convertible bonds, it's the same thing. I wouldn't I wouldn't brush the whole convertible bond market with that brush. It's just that uh, y you have good good you have good companies that have convertible bond issues. And the best thing about some of those issues today is you get the downside protection of the, of the bond uh, and the upside potential of the stock. So there's good companies that have issued convertible bonds. Well, what I meant in the book was when certain companies kind of abuse and keep coming back to the convertible bond market, that's the warning sign. Right. And, you know, you've been so gracious to give me all this time. You're usually on CNBC or NBC or whatever for four minutes. You've spent almost an hour with me, so I really, really appreciate it. Um, let me, last question I have is um, Operation Twist. Do you know what that is? Sure. Uh, what's going on with that? And what do you, what do, you do you think that's going to help, hinder, or if there's anything good about it? Well, it definitely helps. Um, the question is, 
what's the meaningfulness of the help? I mean, what's the what does it do to GDP? Um, it's it's definitely you know taking down mortgage rates. Uh, the thirty-year mortgage just went below four percent for the first time ever. So it's um, it's they're essentially they're selling short-term treasuries and buying uh, long-term. So they're taking they're suppressing the yield on long-term maturities. The mortgage market, like I said, has come in, which means that uh, that that market is. Um, is has lower, you know, it doesn't cost as much to borrow money in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's there's a fair amount of academics globally that are ten times uh, more intelligent and and have more experience than I do that pretty much disagree on this matter. I mean, some some of the Fed governors are saying that we don't need it and it's not going to do much help, and then uh, Chairman Bernanke is saying it's gonna, it's going to, you know. At least act like 25 basis point to 50 basis point cut in interest rates. So it's really an experimental drug that they're using that we really don't fully understand the the, the long term or the short term implications of it. <laughs> Here we go again. Or <laughs> but or it does. But if it if it the one thing it does do as QE2 did, it gives some type of positive. Um, feeling in the markets that the Fed is doing something, and, uh, you know, that's important. That's great. Listen, I thank you for your time. Is there any parting uh, words you have for um, the listeners out there? Uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, just uh, stay in touch. Follow me on you know, Twitter, and um, and uh, appreciate people, you know, come to my website and and, uh, and give me their points of view as to, to my thoughts. Okay, so where can they get a hold of you again? Uh, it's at ConvertBond on Twitter, and my website is LawrenceGMcDonald.com. And I'm on the speaking tour, so if anybody in this audience uh, knows of someone that's looking for a keynote speaker, uh, I've spoken at uh, a lot of the big uh, insurance companies. I've spoken to all the big conferences globally, and I've got uh, references there. Right, and your and your blog is the uh, Lawrence G. McDonald. LawrenceGMcDonald.com, which is a great blog. You should, everybody should go check that out. Um, We've been talking to, first of all, this is J.W. Najarian, and we've been talking to Lawrence McDonald, the um, author of, uh, uh, first of all, I'm sorry, you're the senior director at New Edge. What is New Edge? Let's ask you that. Well, New Edge is um, it's, uh, the largest broker in the world. We uh, face customers in fixed income, commodities, uh, futures, derivatives. We're the largest derivatives player in the world. Of the biggest market share in that space, and I um, I do business with. I offer um, macro uh, and trading advice, and, and I trade ideas to hedge funds and asset managers in the high yield space, uh, convertible bonds, as well as equities. Oh, great! So this is um, thanks again, Larry. Thanks a lot. Nigerian, and uh, we've been speaking to Lawrence McDonald, author of A Colossal Failure of Common Sense, The Inside Story of the Collapse of Lehman Brothers. Um, everybody have a great day and a better tomorrow, and thank you, Larry. Thank you, J.W. Thank you for listening to J.W. On Purpose with J.W. Nigerian. You can find J.W. On Purpose at jwonpurpose.com. 
JW on Purpose is the property and is a trademark of Meta Media Group, and this audio is copyright 2011, and all rights are reserved.